Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey everyone, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. I'm Matt Kwan. And I'm Seb Lavoie. We have a very special guest, a returning guest today, Sebastian Lavoie. Seb, how you doing? Great to see you. Great to see you, man. I'm good. Great. So this is probably the third time we've tried recording. <laughs> As you can see, Steve usually drives the bus and uh, I'm very amateur at, at recording podcasts and Steve's out with a cold today. So great to be back on the show and great to have a good friend here, Seb, talking with us. So how you doing, man? Good to see you. I'm good, man. But about Steve, is it a cold or is it the COVID? <laughs> no, he's he's doing just fine. Yeah, and just great to catch up with you. I know a lot you're going through a lot right now, but Seb, this is the first time he's been on since he's had some somewhat of a traumatic event recently where he's had some complications with a surgery. That was what, about a month and a half ago, some, two months ago, something like that. August 25th, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure you've told this story you know, dozens of times now, it's probably getting really tiring for you, but uh, we wanted to wait until you had some time to heal up before you could tell your story to us. So I'll just give you the floor and you can sort of share what happened. Yeah. So um, on August 25th, I was in Toronto in a private clinic to get a surgery in uh, one of my legs, so my my left leg. And it was very minor in nature, nothing, nothing crazy. And that night I went to my Airbnb and started experiencing some irregular pain. But unfortunately, I was a bit of a victim of having a, a bit of a higher pain threshold in that I didn't think anything of it. It's just, oh, it must be post-surgical post pain and must be normal. Well, what happened was I actually developed a compression syndrome in my left calf compartment. Compression syndrome is when the muscle bundle actually starts and I'm making it I'm simplifying it here because it's actually a, a bit more scientific than that but we're looking at the muscle essentially swelling to the point where it outgrows the pocket that it's in which is the fascia now as it does that and compresses the blood vessels and the nerves and all the good stuff that you know makes all this works properly you eventually if the muscles are oxygen deprived for too long or blood deprived for too long, you are looking at muscle necrosis or muscle essentially dying, which is exactly what happened to me. And sorry, it's it's is it compression syndrome or compartmental syndrome? Sorry, I yes, compartment syndrome is what it is. Compartment syndrome. But the but it is the the muscles are getting compressed essentially. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So it's a compression. Uh, my apologies. It's a compression, and you know anything above six hours of compression um, goes down the the 
sort of the rate of recovery of, you know, be able to salvage the muscle goes down substantially. I can't remember what the percentages are exactly, but I was in compression essentially for 26 hours, which is a long time. And so over the course of between August 26th to October 1st, I had a total of nine surgeries. Those surgeries serve the purpose of removing or debriding, which is a procedure in which they're removing dead necroded tissue or muscles from the leg. So in my case, they removed pretty much everything in my left leg compartment, in my calf compartment. So they removed you know, everything that was ever in there. And it's kind of funny because I always get people say, so when can you start rebuilding your muscle? I'm like, you don't understand. Like the muscle is not there. Like they removed it. I'm not a reptile who loses his leg and grows a leg back. It's like my fucking muscle. Once it's gone, it's, it's not coming back. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. So there was the ninth surgery. And then from there, um, there's supposed to be a three month period where, we assess what's going on with the inside. So is there, are my nerves, uh, mainly the tibial nerve, regaining sort of life and coming back to life and giving me back sensations and everything? And it's very misleading because I've had neurological pain the entire time. So it sounds like everything is firing on all cylinders in there, whereas it may not be the case because a lot of this stuff is referral neurological pain. So we don't know for sure. So January is essentially the date um, at which the doctors are going to look at my leg and look at, you know, what I've done for recovery and how far I've come along and what the progress was and make a decision as to whether or not we're going to launch in a series of reconstructive surgeries or amputate the leg below the knee. Now, there's a little bit of contention around that because as you know, Matt, like (laughs) doctors often, you know, for you to have the leg attached to your body is sufficient to be seen as a success. Like you still have your leg and you can almost walk normally. Your gait is affected and those types of things. But for us, people that like to athletes and people that like to to use their physicality uh, to live, basically functionality becomes very important so for me if they say okay well we're going to launch into a series of reconstructive surgery over the course of two or three years and i'm 45 years old like let's go for three years that's not great to begin with but then also there is no guarantee on the level of functionality once they actually you know complete all those surgeries so you could go theoretically go for eight or nine surgeries and have say a 40 percent functionality rate yeah, for the, for those who don't know, Seb is just a, a super athlete, like very uh, high level CrossFit athlete, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt, retired member of ERT, and uh, as far as I know, kind of wanting to be a reservist for the ERT RCMP. So what he's explained to me is like having having your leg is great to most people. They they'd be very happy to just have their leg, but uh, Seb is he's an athlete and, and basically a fucking super soldier and without the full functionality of his leg, or at least a high percentage of functionality to my understanding, it's just, it's not really, it's more of a, of a curse than anything to have a leg that doesn't have the functionality needed to perform at a high level. So that's where the dilemma comes in where it's like, you know, do we take three years to try to launch a reconstructive plan and we don't even know 
what the functionality will be at the end of the day, or should we just remove the leg, get get a prosthetic, and then kind of uh, you know make adjustments from there? So, I mean, it's like I've I've said it from the beginning with him. It's kind of like you're a wolf and a rock has landed on your leg, and you have to decide like, am I going to chew this fucking leg off, or what am I going to do? Because I know that. I know that if Seb couldn't train BJJ at the level he wants and if he couldn't work out to the level he wants and if he couldn't, you know, if he couldn't contribute to his team the way he wants that he'd, he'd probably rather not be alive, you know, it's just not worth it for guys like him. It's so important to have the lifestyle and the quality of life rather than to just settle for settle for less. Right. So it really is. It's a dilemma for sure. Yeah, it is. I mean, we, we, we kind of have to look at the totality of the circumstances in terms of conducting like the right risk assessment. It's like, okay, well, let's look at the functionality rates and let's look at the functionality rates with the prosthetics, right? And we're talking about below the knee amputation here, which is a different ball game altogether than say a mid thigh amputation, mm-hmm. right? And, and so that would be a lot more of a, conundrum if I was forced to make a decision and and make an argument for or against an amputation at the mid thigh level because that's a completely different ball game whereas below the knee you know with a with the right prosthetics you could be looking at 70 to even 80 percent functionality rate and so that's kind of what I'm looking at and whether or not because I've for those of you who don't know I retired in March of last year of course and I got hit Shortly after that, um, I retired as in just left policing and are now in business. So I, you know, it gave me some flexibility, but it's taken away, obviously, some of the medical benefits and those types of things. So anyways, enough on that. But whether or not I do go back to to the team or whether or not I do go back to policing in some capacity, it makes really no difference because the reason why I went to, say, the path that I chose in my career was because of I was who I was, not the other way around, you know, like I didn't do all the things that I did so that I could be on ERT. I was an earth guy because I was all those things. So whether or not I'm professionally engaged in tactical endeavors doesn't change who I am on the makeup side of things. So whether or not I go back to work is pretty much irrelevant. Like I just, there are certain things that I just won't live without and accept for myself and um, not having the ability to use my leg at an acceptable level is just isn't an option really. Mm-hmm. Especially now that your career has sort of transitioned into leadership roles. Well, I mean, you've always had a leadership role, but you know, it's it, using more of your, your mind and, and uh, you know, your speaking and whatnot and how you, how you engage leaders. I mean, you really, I don't want to say you don't need the function in your leg to that degree anymore on the physical level, but you know, you can still be very, very successful with, with just who you are and what you've done. Everyone, you know, a lot of people know who you are, but I think it's, it's also like, you know, the ability to do jujitsu. And you'd even mentioned to me that competing was something that you were interested in. Again, that's still a goal in your mind, you know, and how can you get there at the higher levels if you, if you're lacking functionality, you know, in, in one of your limbs, right? It's, it's, it's not an easy thing. So, you know, knowing you, I'm, I'm, pre- <laughs> I, I know you'll do whatever it takes to keep you on the mats, right? And you have been doing some jujitsu lately, have you not? Yeah, we'll call it that. <laughs> it's been, yeah, it's been a bit of a rough go in terms of um, just shaking the rust off, coming back. Actually, you know what's funny is when I initially came back, I was actually doing really, really, really good. Uh, you know, it, it seemed as though I, I didn't really skip a beat. And of course, 
credit on that might be watching a lot of instructionals and kind of kicking around and continuing to keep the brain and the and the and the frontal cortex involved in in jujitsu you know endeavors without actually doing it. But it took a couple of weeks where I started to feel some real impediment with my leg in doing the jujitsu and whether it was like having the ability to transfer, you know, if I was say in a, in, in a single leg butterfly with my good leg, with my, my right leg, I would be able to elevate where, whereas normally I'd, I'd have both my butterflies in, but then when I try to elevate, say on the left side, it puts a lot of undue pressure on my knee because those muscles are all atrophied. And even if I'm trying to train those muscles, it's, it's really, really difficult just because there's a, there's a blunt disconnect there, right? And there's a lot of things that I cannot do to reinforce certain muscles. So it really sort of outed some gaps in my left side on my left side and uh also i have extreme sensitivities in my toes on the left side as well so anything like having active feet and being on a top position and being on my toes or even taking somebody's back and being on top of them lying like in the prone and all of a sudden pressure is applied to my toes is just excruciating mm, yeah how often are you training right now? I think over the course of the last probably three months, I probably rolled 10 times, if that. So, and normally, as you know, I'd be, I'd be on the mats every day. Mm -hmm. The idea of potentially finding myself with part of a limb missing and having to reconstruct my game and, and change things and it does not really bother me. What bothers me is having the limb in place and being unable to do what I want to do because the pain is unbearable. And it, it may not be at the time, as I found out a couple times, where I'm just, you know, doing something, a role or even non-competitive. We're talking about just regular roles. And the next day is where I realize, you know, how bad this leg is and how, how bad the pain can be. Mm -hmm. And you're typically like a single leg X Ashigurami kind of player, you know, from, from the years that I've known you training, a lot of like open guard type game. I know you've probably considered, okay, how am I going to adjust my game for, you know, if, if I do lose the leg? I mean, I've thought about it too. Are there any kind of positions or adjustments that you've thought, okay, if, you know, if that does happen, this is where my game is probably going to end up moving towards. Like what positions do you sort of see yourself playing? Yeah. I, you know, I don't think a whole lot's going to change in terms of I, over the, I transitioned over the lines and yes, I always was a guard player. Thanks for, you know, Jason Gagno and Cabrina for this. But as I found out over the course of my sort of last two years at Browns and then into the blacks is that I really enjoyed the top positions because they're actually a lot easier and that I could always use my guard as a bailout if, if things went sideways as I knew it was always there. So I wasn't really get you know, getting nervous about finding myself in my guard and having somebody pass it. I think that I can still use the top position. I have, you know, enough sort of body strength and upper body strength and everything to do my pins properly to to move around and I have enough agility to move around on the one leg like bounce from one side to another if I need and everything but you know evidently still have the guard the the really the, the truly open guard as a bailout in case of so so my goal is going to be to just learn where my leg is in space and time and how it's going to impact 
you know, my ability to, to retain my guard. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to think about. I mean, on one hand, yeah, you're missing your hook. You know, let's say you did lose your, from below the knee down, you would be missing your hook and you'd be missing your shin as a frame. But, uh, but on the flip side, your opponent can now no longer control the cuff of your pants at that range. And they can't, you know, they can't, attack a footlock obviously they can't control the the knee line so there's there are pros that come along with the cons as well it's kind of interesting plus your you know your knee if you had an amputation would be like a stump which is kind of like a badass frame that could be just as effective as potentially framing with your knee so it is an interesting sort of thing to think about if you're put into that situation and it might not require as many modifications as you think Obviously, playing like a spider on that side is not really possible, but I've often thought about, you know, playing things like lapel guards and things like that with the other leg and how how that could be quite effective as well, right? And obviously, in terms of passing, you could pass on your feet, but probably passing on your knees and learning how to use pressure in a, in a sprawling type fashion would probably be a little bit more stable. But again, those are kind of bridges that I guess we'll cross when we have more of an idea as to where we're going to go with this, right? Because I'm as crazy as it as it is, like, like I'm not going to lie, some people will hear how you're speaking about, oh, I'd rather lose my leg than not be able to, and they'll think you're fucking insane. They'll be like, you're a madman. And part of me thinks that too, because I commend your bravery and, and you know, your dedication to your quality of life. But at, at, on the other hand, I think about it and I'm like, I understand where you're coming from because you know, if you're, if you have a, like a dead leg and it's causing you a lot of pain, it's excruciating and you can't use it how you want. I mean, honestly, I get it. I've, you know, at some point you might want to just be done with it and say, let's, let's sort of start with, uh, with an amputated leg. Right. Very, very interesting for sure. Yeah. I think it's kind of easy to get wrapped up in the whole leg. You know, I want to keep, I want to keep a limb attached to my body in that, but I think until you've experienced multiple surgeries back to back. And I mean, there's people that have it way worse than me. Imagine going overseas, getting blown up and four limbs gone and people with 36 surgeries in a month or whatever, right? So there's always worse. Evidently, in order to keep perspective, I always look at who has it worse. But until you've experienced having all those surgeries and and, and uh, say the pain management that goes along with that and, you know, then that rolls into the meds and what are you actually using? Is that opiates? And is, you know, so there's a lot of issues with having say foreseeably another eight to nine surgeries on that leg. And those issues transcends the presence of the leg, you know, itself. And there has been, you know, a lot of struggles, as you know, Matt, uh, just with respect to getting off the pain medication and not that I wasn't addicted in any way, but obviously there was no real tapering off because they sent me home with so much medication, way too much. Yeah. As, as you said, you, you, you weren't addicted to it and yeah, they didn't really ration you or anything. They just gave you a shitload of what Oxycontin. Is that what they basically gave you? morphine yeah hydromorphone and a bunch of other things but yeah i mean addiction is a, is a different beast too because it may not be it oftentimes it doesn't even have anything to do with your frontal cortex and your decision making ability oftentimes it has to do with a physiological reaction right so i don't think what i consider myself is lucky to not have had an addictive personality with respect to those because uh, arguably I'm, I'm addicted to other things <laughs> but uh you know with respect to the opiates themselves but i can tell you that the prospect of spending you know another three years sort of managing that 
and the ancillary issues that are resulting from the situation, really. I mean, neurological issues and neuropathic itch or things like where you're itchy everywhere on your skin because you have neurological, there was a neurological, such a deep neurological impact on your body that you are now consistently uncomfortable. I don't know that I have three years in me to just kind of hang out and be unwell, you know, and it's not just to be clear, it's not that I'm not doing good considering because I almost died on that, you know, in, in Toronto, but being consistently unwell takes its toll on you really, really quickly. So, you know, enough said, I mean, we're waiting until January and see where that goes. And then uh, a decision will be made and then we'll, we'll, we'll execute whatever plan we come up with. But I tell you, if the leg goes and I stick to jujitsu, there, there are incredible humans around that have been doing it for years that are amputees. And, uh, you know, oftentimes I've heard people say I've rolled with them and couldn't even tell, you know, like, so I, there will be people I'll be tapping into and, and Matt, evidently you'll be one of them because you've always helped with my game and everything. So those are the things coming down the pipe, depending what happens. Yeah. I've actually done, uh, I've done private lessons with a local here. He wanted to learn leg locks and he's, he actually has an amputation just below the knee as well. And that, for me as an instructor, it's, it's a challenge. At first, when he asked me, I was like, man, like, well, how am I going to teach this guy leg locks? He's got one leg and we found ways to, to still wedge. And there are certain positions you just can't do. There's certain things that you can't do because you're missing the end of that lever, but there's still things you can do. And I think as long as you can identify what is possible and what is not possible and, you know, how we can also take advantages away from perhaps being short, being short one limb, for example, the lack of grips and whatnot, you can still be quite effective. And actually this guy would go on. I remember we were down in, this was the before COVID happened. We were down in Washington and at Anaga and he actually heel hooked a guy. This guy heel hooked someone with his one leg. It was, it was fucking cool. Not going to lie. And yeah, obviously it would be an honor and sort of my mission to help you adjust your game. However, whatever that looks like. And, you know, no matter what happens over the next three years, whether or not you go in the direction of reconstructive surgery or amputation and, uh, and you're recovering and whatnot. One thing I've realized, you know, of course I've never had anything as traumatic as what you've had, but I, you know, knee injuries and whatnot and being on the shelf for however long jujitsu is one of those great things where as long as you are still studying and thinking about it, you can totally make a a return. And like you say, it feels like you haven't missed a beat because your mind is still focused on jujitsu. And I think that that's super important, especially from the beginner levels. You know, I remember being a white belt, a blue belt back at West Coast where, you know, we both started and uh, I would get minor injuries or whatever. And I'd have to take a couple of weeks off and I just didn't come to class and I regret doing that because I should have come to class and I should have still thought about jujitsu. I did return. A lot of people do get injured and they just never return. But I think now more than ever, it's so important if I hurt my knee or whatever, which does happen once or twice a year, that I, I'm studying and that I'm still there. And as an instructor, it actually allows me to observe a lot more and to actually potentially be an even better instructor in ways that I couldn't be if I was healthy rolling with people because I can get to watch them and sort of see the holes in their game from a bird eye view, as opposed to, you know, actually sparring with them. It's just different because you have such a wider, 
you have a, such a wider view of what's going on when you're not actually rolling. And, you know, there's an exercise you can do, you know, Danaher talks about how when you're injured, you can watch two people fight and sort of put yourself in their shoes and sort of solve problems mentally as they go on. And in that way, you're still, you know, you're still kind of rolling in a way and mentally. And it's a tool that I've used every time I've gotten injured since I've, I've learned about it. And yeah, when I come back, I, I feel like I haven't missed a beat at all, of course. So yeah, lots of, lots of good things you can still do. Thankfully, it's such a mental battle. And because of that aspect of it being so much mental, we can still improve, which is, uh, you know, I find a lot of comfort knowing that. Yeah, like from a training science perspective, you'd be looking at essentially a visualization. But instead of being, say, a visual visualization, it's a visual tactile and you have all the other components as well. So if you're in the training room sitting there and everybody's doing the thing, you can smell jiu-jitsu, you can feel jiu-jitsu, you can hear it, you can also see it. So by putting yourself in a multi-dimensional visualization exercise, it's actually even more impactful on the subconscious mind. And what we do know about the subconscious mind is it doesn't really make the difference between reality and fiction. So now you're actually doing something that's so close from an emotional standpoint to the real experience that you're actually gaining traction and getting better, you know, on a subconscious level, which transfers to your game, really. Yeah, you know, jiu-jitsu is very physically demanding. It's very hard on the body, especially when you put in, you know, two decades, three decades in the sport. I mean, injuries are just, it's really an inevitable thing. Everyone goes through them. And it's important to know how to sort of keep yourself sane during times of, of catastrophic injuries. It's so easy to get depressed. Trust me, I've been there, you know, before I, I had my knee fixed and it still periodically gives me issues. I actually had a, I tweaked it like a month ago. It's doing good now though, but it's, it, I remember before when I, my knee was locking and before I'd, I cleaned up the meniscus, I was, I had thoughts in my head, like, is this it for me? Like, am I never going to compete again? Is it ever going to be better? How long am I going to be on the shelf? You know, and it's it, like for an athlete, especially an athlete who competes, man, you, your mind can go to some dark places where you start, you really let your thoughts take over. And, you know, there's other things that go along with that, of course, addiction and weight gain and, and uh, depression and things like that. So it's very, I think it's really important if if you are dealing with a catastrophic injury to seek out people who've been through those injuries and to sort of look at it as a holistic picture and, and say to yourself, hey, you know what, I can't roll with the boys for a couple months if, you know, or I can't compete for however long, but I can still get better. I know one day I'll get back out there. And when I do, I'm going to, I'm going to be better than now. And that's, that's something when I came to terms with the fact that I could still get better, it was very, very comforting because I've always said to people and knock on wood, it's like, it's inevitable. Like one day I'll probably blow my ACL. You know, it's, it's such a common injury. The ACL on my right leg is like, it's okay. <laughs> it's still there, but like eventually it could happen. It's a reality it could happen today. It could happen next year. It could happen in five years, but potentially could happen. And when that happens, you know, you're on the shelf for potentially up to a year. And luckily we're at a point where medicine, you know, that used to be a career ending injury, but now most people come back from that now we're seeing. And there's very good ways to recover a, a torn ACL, but you will be out for crazy amounts of time and go through crazy amounts of pain and frustration and all that. So 
kind of being able to mentally jujitsu your brain during these injuries and keeping yourself sane and knowing that there is a light at the end, that there is a way to improve while you can't physically output the way you want, I think is, for me, it's really comforting. And a big part of that is access to instructionals and resources that can still move you along during these times. Yeah. And, you know, I'd tie right into this and say, like, when would you have taken the time to do that? Like, when would you have taken the time to watch a hundred hours of instructional, right? Because yeah. you, you may not have had the, the physical time to do that between work and all the other endeavors you're engaged in or your mad time or whatever the case may be. But then there's, there's all kinds of other sides to this as well. It's, it, it becomes to what defines you, you know, what defines you in life. And I think that's a critical, and we've seen uh, military personnel and police officers like let the job define them. Like I am all about this job. And so what happens if they are unable to do it? Then they fall apart. Right. And I think the same is true for jiu-jitsu competitors or some people that truly live the jiu-jitsu lifestyle for them to think that jiu-jitsu is all they are you know like it defines them completely and it isn't the case so it's important that jiu-jitsu be a part of the journey as it is for me a part of who i am but it is, certainly isn't who i am so if something happens to me i'm a bunch of other things that i can start investing into and a lot of the times those things were suffering from my lack of investment because i was investing in jiu-jitsu so there is a way to always consistently get better at something even if it isn't jiu-jitsu you know so that's one way to kind of look at it from my perspective Yeah. For example, I wear a lot of hats at the gym. I've, I've spoken about it uh, on the podcast before being a gym owner, a competitor, an instructor, right? A bit, a businessman, a podcaster, which I, I'm really not on the show as much as I used to be, but I do wear a lot of hats, you know, as in my position. And like you said, me training every day with my team and rolling with them and whatnot, I do neglect them in ways because yes, I can give them my time in sparring, but I can't watch the room as a whole and I can't make those observations and give people feedback on a level that I could if I was just watching, you know, and that's something that I have gained. It's not easy to sit out while everyone's rolling. It does get easier if you use the mental visualization tools that we discussed earlier where you're putting yourself in their shoes. That makes it easier. but. I take comfort knowing like, well, now I can watch way more people roll and I can give them feedback that could potentially help them that I couldn't give if I was sparring on the other side of the room, you know? Yes, I'm physically gaining from sparring with them, but I'm also not able to give them the advice that they might need, you know? And if you're watching your students and then you see, oh, one of your students is consistently making the same mistake, you may not have caught that if if you weren't there to watch it. So that is... Uh, That's definitely something like there are, there are positives. And one way to get a positive experience from an injury is to try and really find that positive change and, and say, okay, you know what? There are pros to this. <laughs> Even though I can't roll the way that I want or, you know, I have to take time away from the physical aspect of jujitsu, I can still help people and, and I can still, you know, make an impact on my team. So. So yeah, I mean, the great sort of discussion on injuries in jiu-jitsu, but maybe, I don't know if you'd mind, Seb, if we could kind of take it back to Toronto where you were like, like the way you've described 
your experience during your surgeries. I don't even know what to call it. You know, it's basically like a, a period, a couple of weeks there where you're just in and out of surgery every day in a malaise, you know, on on heavy prescription drugs and whatnot. Like you've basically described it to me as like, like kind of like Jacob's ladder, like you're like you're in hell and there's, you know, it's, it's dark from what you've told me. Do you want to maybe revisit that is, is, and sort of tell us what was going through your head during this time where you literally almost died? Yeah, not really, but I will do it. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm totally fine with it. So I spent uh, following the incident and following the initial surgeries, I spent 28 days bed rest in Toronto hospital. So I was essentially, um, I wasn't even getting up to go to the washroom. You know, they, they would bring like, um, these containers to me. And I, you know, I, it, it was pretty crazy. It was pretty surreal, but yeah, I spent the 28 days and the first couple of days, I would say probably around a week, we were really dialed in the medication to try to find the right balance so that I would, the pain would be managed, but I would also have some mental clarity because it's easy to go the other way. And so to describe to people what that kind of feels like, especially with the opiates, for me anyways, that was, that was my experience. I can't, I can't speak to everybody else's experience, but my experience was that I felt fine physically and, and that I didn't feel the pain anymore, but my brain did not feel right at all. Like I had doomsday feelings, you know, like, and I'll kind of extrapolate on this a little bit, but <laughs> it, it was a bit of a hell loop where your biggest fears are coming to fruition or reality somehow. And so for me, having spent the last, say, better part of 25 years really in jobs and positions where risk was constant and risk assessing properly was necessary, but also for me to have the ability to address the risk when needed was created a bit of a monster. And that if I feel any sort of vulnerability, it increases a bit of anxiety, right? With respect to what if somebody walks in this in this room right now and I'm unable to defend myself, you know, it's the first time in my life or it's the first time in the, in the last 25 years that I'm incapable of defending myself. And it feels like a, you know, sacrificial lamb sitting there waiting for somebody to just decide that they want to end me, you know? And so I was, <laughs> I, you know, with the opiates, I had this constant clout of darkness around. Like, so I'd be in the room and I'd be lying on my side and, and I'd have the blankets on top of me and I might, only my eyeballs would be moving and I'd be looking around and the entire time I had this impending feeling that somebody was actually going to walk into the room to hurt me and that I was going to be unable to do anything. And it created such anxiety that it made the place like a dungeon. But in addition to this, I was on a high where I could sit there and say, take a fixed point on the wall and look at it for 16 hours you know, like without moving, barely. It was completely insane how my my brain, you know, would fixate on certain things and just not let go. And so, and then what would happen is it'd be a vicious cycle because then the pain would start resurfacing after, you know, a couple hours of having not taken anything. And then I'd be, for some time, I was on a self-distribution system where I would essentially, as soon as I felt 
some pain, I would press the button and I would get two milligrams of hydromorphone or 0.02 milligram rather of hydromorphone. And I could do it every five minutes. So I could really self-medicate, you know, until I was blue in the face. And it was a constant bailout also from the emotions that I was feeling by being in my dungeon waiting for somebody to come kill me. And so, you know, there were some really, really dark times in terms of emotionally and mentally, which were directly correlated to the opiates and the actual physical pain that I was feeling and the inability to do the things that I have been doing for the last 25 years, which include defend myself. I did not have anybody with me in Toronto, and that was by choice. I wanted to, I didn't want to drag anybody along, but also, you know, when you, you hit the bed so hard with your toes and you're jumping on one foot and somebody's like, what happened? And you're like, just give me a minute, give me a second. Well, that's exactly what I was doing is essentially after it happened, I just needed time to focus on getting better and focus on overcoming the adversity. I didn't want to have to explain anything. I didn't want to have small talk conversations. I didn't want to, somebody else to, to be waiting for me to wake up and sleep or do whatever. So I wanted to be completely left alone so that I could focus on, on recovery. And that's a little bit unusual from what I'm being told, but that's how I process the information better. And that's how I was able to kind of you know, kickstart myself. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there's been people that visited me that brought me food. Like I had awesome friends like Micah Breakfield and, 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 you know, some other guys that came over and, 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 and cooked for me and all this good stuff. And it was great to have them. It was, it was amazing in terms of, uh, of boosting morale. And that was the same you and I, we, you and I chatted, Matt and all this stuff. So uh, it was great. But the bulk of the time I wanted to be on my own so that I could do the healing on my own. And so when I, after 28 days, what ended up happening is, and I spare a little bit of the details, I mean, in terms of the pain that I was experiencing. as In terms of pain from a one to 10, you're at a 10. Yeah. For the, I would say that for the first like 12 to 13 days, definitely I was at a between eight and 10 all the time. And, uh, and it was not good. And it was a real 10 to the point where they would give me, I remember at one point, I can't remember what it was now, 30, like three shots of 10 milligrams of morphine uh, back to back and nothing. Like it wasn't stopping anything. That's how bad the pain was. But thankfully there was an acute pain team that came over and we really broke down the type of pain I was experiencing and when, and you know, what made it worse, what made it better. And then we really start dialing in the various meds to try to balance this. And it's important to understand like right now, after, you know, nine surgeries in the last three surgeries, I've asked not to be given opiates because I'd gotten off the opiates and I really felt better. Even I was able to manage the pain properly. And I also just didn't want the mental fog of being on the opiates. But there is a, a need for the opiates. There is a need. There is, it's critical that if a person has a catastrophic injury and they do not take the proper pain medication, the pain management, the body will not kickstart the recovery process because right now it's in survival mode. Whereas if the pain is lessened, the body will finally relax and start rebuilding. So those are some of the things that are, you know, critical to remember. It's not just okay, opiates are all bad. I never want to take them. No, you might have to take them 
temporarily so that you may address the injury system and, and the recovery associated with and do it properly and then have a plan with professionals to taper off those very meds. In my, in my case, they sent me home with enough meds to freaking OD 17 times over. You know, like they, they sent me home on the premise that I was at a 10 pain. And by the time I left Toronto, I was about in a five pain. And by the time I got home, I was at a three or four pain. So now you're taking the same amount of meds that you were taking at 10, at a level 10, but you're now a level, a level three. So now you're really compromising you know, on account of what, because really you're not managing any pain at that point. Now, logic would want that you go backwards. So, okay, when I felt a seven pain, I took this. So I'm going to go back to that. When I felt a five pain, I took this. So I'll go back to that. But it actually doesn't work like that. Once the body has sort of got into this groove where it's, it's needing the opiates, the way to taper down is actually fully science-based and it's not necessarily directly correlating to the levels that you were at when you started. So you need to have a professional and a transitional team say, looking at the totality of the circumstances and say, we are going to taper you off over the course of say nine weeks. And really it's about how reasonable it would have been for me. But anyway, I ended up going cold turkey and uh, yeah, that was pleasant. Would you say that the doctors or the healthcare system, or whatever, did they administrate these drugs to you and not really, I mean, I'm not trying to throw in anyone under the bus, but I mean, a man who is less aware might've easily gotten addicted to opiates in that situation. And it's, and it's a story by this point, it's a story old as time. Like I know people who are like that. Right. So, and I think a lot of people have, some people maybe even know, have lost people in that case. Like how should, should they have created a plan for you to wean off of these drugs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, I'm not a blame layer or anything like that. So it's more about like finding solutions so that we can do it better forward. But as I found out through this entire process, there was really nobody like as in nobody in the medical system that was responsible for the taper of people coming off opiates. And so since, like, I know that VGH in Vancouver has now moved towards a transitional pain team, that transitional team just came to bear. So we were talking about, you know, a couple months old, but before that there wasn't. So what you would have is the acute pain clinic or the acute pain team would come in, they would assess the pain management needs and address them, but nowhere in their mandate was the transitions from whatever they ended up prescribing to what was going to happen after when you didn't have, and nobody else was responsible for that. So everybody, what I found out is that everybody was playing hot potato with the issue because I was very vocal about the issue. I'm like, listen, you guys, I have 300 pills here of opiates. I'm in full out withdrawals. I'm having, you know, I had, I think, 60 or 70 days of night sweats. And we were talking night sweats where I was changing four or five times a night and, you know, drenched. Like you basically took me, dunk me in a pool and put me back in bed. Like that's how I woke up. Not just, you know, the regular night sweats you might have from time to time and even from allergies or whatever. But, and so there was a, a, a huge gap. And in doing my research, you know, and one of the most heartbreaking things that I did when I was researching the opiate addiction 
and this, the withdrawal control mechanism so that I could manage some of my withdrawal sim- symptoms. Because to be honest with you, Matt, my, my nights were like nightmare on Elm Street, man. It was, I refused to go to bed because my nights were horrible. So I would stay up until like three or four in the morning and I'd go back to bed at around 4.30 because somehow in the morning, I didn't experience the night sweats or anything like that. So there's a lot of the issues that I would experience at night that I wouldn't during the day. So I would stay up all night, essentially, you know, watching videos and trying to educate myself on the, you know, how to deal with what I was experiencing. And one of the heartbreaking things that I saw was people commenting, you know, in the comment after an opioid video saying, I am dying here and nobody's here to help me or whatever. And I just, it was like so heartbreaking to see so many people struggle with opiates. And, 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 and for me, on the small scale that I was on, I knew like, listen, if I was this other person that's commenting here, I'd probably be 10 times worse at the moment. And I can only imagine what that must have felt like, you know? So it was, um, it was a very, very frustrating time. And I will, I will go ahead and say this as well, Matt, like the proliferation of recommending opiates for this and that and everything for pain management has actually increased, I don't know, by 300% or some over the course of the last 10 years. Like we are getting prescribed those things, like literally like Smarties. And, uh, one of the, one of the things that happened to me that was quite interesting. So I get to a hospital and it's surgery number seven or eight. I can't remember. And I basically say, look, whatever you do, whatever happens here, whatever amount of pain I'm in, I do not want to take opiates. Um, and again, you know, if I was experiencing a 10 pain, evidently I probably would take him, but it was, I made it very, very clear. So the anesthesiologist was asking why. And I said, I'm in full out withdrawal and I got cold turkey and I'm trying to get better. And it's not, it's not really working right now. And it's been a couple of weeks and she goes, okay, I'll let the surgeon know, blah, 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 blah. So all this happens. I get surgery. Everything goes well. I get sent home with a list of medication, but I don't really look at it. And I give it to a friend of mine who goes and gets the meds, freaking opiates. You know, like it doesn't matter if I specifically asked not to be prescribed opiates. They basically gave me 35 pills just in case, right? Okay, so I only have 300 at home. Now I got an extra 35 of the same compound that I've been fighting to get off. So it was... um you know, it's, it continues, it continues to proliferate. It's, it's so ingrained in the medical, in the medical field that it's difficult to even not get them, you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in the suburbs in a town called Port Coquitlam. It's where I live today. And I remember it's it's just outside of Vancouver. And I remember in high school, like some of my friends getting into uh, Oxycontin, which are opiates, right? And they call it suburban heroin. And it's basically very, very common amongst young people. They take it because, I mean, essentially it's heroin. It gets you absolutely fucked. I, I've seen I've seen friends snort it, pop it, and I've been offered it many times. I've never taken it because I've seen, you know, and and I've I've experimented with with different drugs and stuff like that. Nothing too heavy, but I I, I remember specifically saying, no, I'm not doing that one because I've seen people like really get fucked up off it. And I'm so glad I never took it. And I remember after I had my knee fixed a couple years ago, that's what they prescribed me was Oxycontin. And uh, I remember 
having those pills with me and thinking like, do I really need this? Like, is this something that, cause I knew how potent they were. I actually have a, that got into it and had problems getting off of it because the doctor prescribed it because they listened to the doctor and just took what they gave them. Right. And before you know it, you're addicted to Oxycontin. And, uh, I, I assessed my pain threshold and, you know, I had my meniscus scoped. I was at like, honestly, compared to what you had, probably a four or a five, like nothing crazy, you know, nothing that a T3 couldn't fix. And, and after about three days of, uh, Okay, but it's not fucking, it's not fucking Oxycontin. (laughs) It's not, it's not like that, right? Like this was Oxycontin. After about three days of taking T3s, I was like, "Ah, I'm I'm done with this. Like, I'm not going to take this anymore. I think the pain is manageable enough. But straight up, like you said, they just throw it at you. And if you're not, if you don't have that self-awareness, I can see it being so easy for the patient to just get, you know, addicted to something like that. And, uh, Man, it's it's kind of scary how that can happen. And there is an the opiate epidemic that's been going on for, you know, well over a decade now. We just don't pay enough attention to and and we know it's there. Everyone knows about it, but nobody really tackles that head on. And the amount of depression and suicide and addiction from it is it's catastrophic. Like it's it's almost everyone knows someone who was either hooked on opiates or has lost someone to opiates. It's insane. And I think that the medical professionals need to really, you know, when they're administrating things like that, they need to be very, very careful and really let the patient know the risk. Because I was never told, you know, when I was given those that prescription, no one ever told me, hey, these will fuck you up. Like you will, you know, you need to be careful with these. These are very addictive. No, there was never a conversation about that. It was just a pill. It was a prescription that was given to me. And if you just take what they give you, I mean, you can end up in some serious shit. So it's definitely something that I hope moving forward, it'll be treated more carefully so that we can avoid you know, more and more people getting addicted to it. Yeah. You know, man, just to add a little bit to this, it also brought some different perspective for me is when you're, when you're looking at people that live on the street, for example, whether it's on East Hastings or anywhere in, in all the major cities, there, there are corners where people are living on the streets and being homeless and drug addicted and those types of things. Like a lot of those people this started with a surgery or it started with an injury or it started like there is a lot more than we can fathom that started their journey into addiction and 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 the street life as a result of a bona fide formal prescription of opiates yeah and i mean if your doctor gives you something like that okay i'll just take it i'll take the recommended dosage and uh yeah i i had more opiates than like prescribed to me than I would have ever needed. It was insane. And, and, and like I said, after three days, I was like, I can stop taking painkillers. I'm fine now. But I'm looking down. I'm like, I got painkillers to for like another two weeks if I want at, and they're high level stuff. So it's like, it's, it's kind of a scary moment. And I know this happens for a lot of people. Like you said, they're handing these fucking things out like smarties nowadays. Great chat. I mean, is anything else you want to add to that right now with where, where your journey is? Like what's, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I'd be surmised not to speak about like recovery and what I've been doing for recovery. Cool, yeah, please. So I think maybe touching a little bit on that and and there's a few things in there that are quite, that were new to me that are proven to be quite effective in affecting my my health and, you know, benefiting my health in various areas, not just with the legs. So there's a few things in there. So evidently when I came back, the first thing I did is weight 
sort of wait for the the wound to be closed back because for the longest time the wound was catastrophic and it was open and that was creating issues and that i couldn't even put you know weight on my knee or i I had a or a joint contracture which means that my leg was essentially bent at a 90 degree angle ish and would not straighten out and that is a big issue and it can become you know an irremediable issue where you actually can't deal with it anymore even through surgery you might not be able to regain the range of motion needed say to have a a, a proper prosthetic and use it properly so the first thing i did was come back here and manage my wound essentially by myself because it kind of got complicated to try to get people in there but evidently i had some uh, and and for people who who are trying to visualize what Seb's talking about, he's like he sent me pictures. Like he had a wound that was probably what ten inches long, something like that, on on a foot long. Would you say? So imagine that your your calf on each side of your leg from the knee down, there's a wound that is like a foot long. No joke, to, because for the compartmental syndrome, that's what they need so that it so that the blood has a place to. Yeah, it, it was insane. It was grim, man. Like these are open wounds. How deep are we talking? Inches deep, like. Oh yeah, I mean, so this is called what Matt's referring to here is called a fasciotomy, where they actually, you know, open the fascia all the way along the leg, and that essentially opens the room for the muscle to ooze out of the muscle compartment, which happened with me. You know, if I imagine this, like on the inside of your leg, on your left leg, where the calf muscle is, if you were to take your right hand and bring your fingers inside the wound, I could literally wrap around my leg on the inside of the wound. That's how deep it was. So it was, you know, four to essentially four to six inches deep within the leg, if that makes any sense. And, and so it was a it was a pretty it was a pretty nasty injury, and I evidently I couldn't shower and everything and everything was done with wipes and it it was an absolutely miserable time, but I was looking forward to go back to the gym and I'd found a trainer that was going to take care of my needs so that I wouldn't have to worry about sort sort of self training and programming doing all this stuff. What I needed to do is to focus on doing the movements and not worry about how those movements would affect my health in the overall picture. So I wanted to download that to somebody else so that I could focus on doing things right. And that's what I did. And so one of the first things I did, because when I left Toronto and on my fifth or sixth surgery here in Vancouver, I was actually 175 pounds, which I hadn't been until I was, was since I was 21. And I'm 45. So, and what do you walk at? At 205, 210, it depends, right? So, I, I was walking around now at 175. I'd lost an incredible amount of weight, most of which was muscle mass uh, because I really didn't have anything else to lose. But the atrophy, the muscle atrophy was absolutely ridiculous and everywhere on my body. So, I, I really wanted to get back in the gym so that I can start feeling better. I could start eating better. I could start sort of gaining my strength back and all with the intent to eventually get back on the mats, obviously, and get back to normal activities, like day-to-day activities. So, I did that. And over the course of about three weeks, I went up 20 pounds, like things really started picking up. My days would be consisting of I would go to my do my workout, and then I discovered something at Elevation Performance here in Vancouver, which is called a multi-baric pod. And essentially, and people are generally familiar with hyperbaric chambers, which are chambers that bring you to depth 
so that you have sustained pressure on your muscle cells and work through that. This is a little bit different in that it takes you into elevation. So it's, it's kind of like uh, mountain climbing or mountaineering, right? And so what it does is it injects fluctuations, you know, of elevation. And so it goes from, you know, 18,000 feet to 2000 feet. And it, it kind of goes like this up and down, up and down over the course of 400 fluctuations. So imagine this. Imagine if you were to take a water bottle and you took the cap off and it's say partially filled and you constrict it so water oozes out of it then you let it go it you know it regains its shape you you pressure it again you know more water comes out of it so the essentially what it is is that's exactly what happens to the cell and the stuff that's being squeezed out of there is actually toxins squeezed out of your body and it has an incredible track record for muscle regeneration for nerve regeneration and, uh, and I can't say enough good about it because I've had a ton of actual data come out of my use of the multibaric pods. And also when I stopped doing it and I went, you know, to work for a week somewhere or whatever, and I wasn't able to get in, I would get so much worse that it was evidently helping. But one of the things that it does is clean up clean up the cells and and that affects all your your blood work numbers and everything and so one of the things that I've carried over for almost 20 years was a low white blood cell count and for me they they attributed it to genetic they said you know what genetically it looks like you're running a lower white blood cell count and I was tested every year in the course of my duties so every year I would have a full blood panel done and it was consistent for over 20 years and I started the multibaric and over the course of about five to six weeks, I had a full blood panel done and my numbers for the first time in my life were absolutely perfect. And we are talking about white blood cell count and everything. So the doctor was really, really curious as to what I'd done to finally get my white blood cell count to be where it needed to be. And so the only thing that I had changed during that time was the multibaric pod. Wow. So. Yeah, so we so we knew that that was great. Now another thing which really really helped with that was it basically there was a lot of edema at the bottom of my leg where it, essentially the muscle isn't there to pump the fluids back up the leg, you know, as it would normally like a pump as you're walking, it pumps the fluids back and all this good stuff. It, right. That just wasn't happening. So what ended up happening is the fluid would essentially pool at the bottom and my foot would feel like 6 inches Thick and it was swollen and everything. So what I would do is I was supposed to do physiotherapy exercises such as, you know, extend my, my foot or move it left to right or move my toes or whatever. And I couldn't do any of that because it was all stuck in concrete from the edema. And so what the multibaric did was pushing all this stuff back up and allow me to actually do my physio exercises and everything inside the pod. And so that did wonders in, 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 in helping the recovery as well. And so right now I have so much neurological input and, and output in there that I know that from a neurological standpoint, there has been a ton of activity in there since, since using the pod. So that's been one of the things that I've used religiously. And then when I left, 
the multiberic pods, because the cells have been kind of squished and the toxins are everywhere, then it's recommended to go in the sauna and the steam room. So I did, a, you know, almost every, well, every second day, really, I would go in the sauna and the steam room and, and get everything sweated out and, you know, regenerate that way. Wow. Fascinating. And that's, is that, that's just open to the public if they want to, if they want to use something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say, man, like, honestly, this has now become a part of what I'm going to do for fitness, regardless of, you know, injury or not. It's actually not that expensive. It's actually quite affordable, but it, what does it cost? Uh, I want to say like you can get 10 sessions for like $240 or oh, something like that. Yeah, that's, that's pretty reasonable. Actually. Yeah. So I spent, I spent about two hours in the pods every two days. So I spent two hours in there. You don't have to spend two hours in there, but I mean, you can bring your laptop and do work and it's just, it's just a great environment. But basically it feels like being in an airplane, you know, as you're descending to land and you have to kind of equalize and everything. So initially, and you're going incrementally, you start at a very low level and then you're slowly moving up in increments. But, it, you know, the feeling of wellness coming out of there is just completely ridiculous. So I really, really enjoyed that part of the recovery process. Wow. That's cool. Mm-hmm. I might need to try that. Mm-hmm. Wow. What's next for you, man? I know you, you, you want to shout out your, your projects that you got going on right now. Let's hear it. Sure, I can. So my company, Raven Strategic, is a consulting company, but it really is an umbrella for a million different things. And and what those things are is the things that Seb wants to do. <laughs> like I, I'm just, you know, for years I was institutionalized and, and I did most of what or some of what I wanted to do and most of what I had to do, right? Which is, which is very different and very con- contrast in contrast to what I'm doing now, which is taking on the projects that I'm really passionate about that I really want to invest in. And so meaningful projects with meaningful people is what I'm after. I really don't, you know, I really don't care for anything else. And so as a result of that, I did some work overseas in some, you know, war-torn countries and, you know, in the spirit and nothing crazy or sexy, but just working in the security field and as a consultant and whatnot. I've been working on a, on a book, which doesn't have a title yet with a former special operator from the, Canadian Forces, uh, Joint Task Force 2, amazing human, um, ex- extremely, extremely smart and, and experienced and articulate. And we are working on essentially a book that speaks to the the pursuit of excellence in a 360 degree. So what it is, is everything that you really, really invest in has a cost. And so how to mitigate the cost that's associated with you know, aiming for the stars and everything you do. And so lessons learned basically from experienced folks that have been through the ringers that have given everything for a singular purpose and ended up achieving, you know, excellence or arguably, you know, achieving excellence along the way and now can say, okay, look, I wish I knew this. I wish I knew that. And I wish I knew this. Well, instead of saying this, and having this empirical data being lost forever, we're going to, we, we basically recorded it and we're going to have it in a book where you can actually read about the things that we would do differently, but still with the goal in mind of achieving excellence in those various things that we're taking on. So super excited about this project. I'm giving it a very short timeline. So I'm focusing the next six months to try to get this out. I really want to get this out and I think we'll probably be self-publishing and doing all this good stuff. So, Yeah, that's great. I mean, one thing 
that I've, you know, I've always known about you aside from being like a crazy athlete, a great jujitsu athlete is your ability to lead and to help people. And, uh, I remember I was actually at my folks cabin when I was discovering about Seb in the hospital or whatever. And like, I was, I was in a pretty rough state because obviously I was very worried about him. And, uh, and I said, you know, whatever happens moving forward, you know, should you make it through this, you're going to, your story will help people. Like it will be an inspiration to people, whatever your future looks like from an athletic point of view or a professional point of view, just know that this is a story that will, will help people that are in a lot of dark places. And that could spread widely through many different avenues of, of hardship that people are experiencing. So, I mean, uh, whatever you got coming out, I'm, I'm very excited to see it. And I recommend everyone check out Seb, I'm sure you're going to hear more about him on our podcast. We always have him on the show. It's always a, a pleasure to have him. Yeah. Anything else? No, man. Thank you very much for having me again. And sorry we missed you, Steve. Yeah, we really missed you. Fucking guy. Yeah. Just a quick mention of the supporters of the show, the people who subscribe on Patreon and uh, support the show in a lot of different ways. We really appreciate your support. You know, it's a, it's amazing. I remember when we were just starting this show in my parents' closet and now uh, and now it's actually, you know, in terms of jiu-jitsu podcasts, it's up there and, and you know, it's all it's all because of you guys. So thank you very much for the support. Thanks, Seb, for the awesome conversation and uh, we'll see you next time. Peace.